This episode is sponsored by ContentFind, a premium video editing and content repurposing service for busy content creators, influencers, brands, podcasters, YouTubers, and marketers. ContentFi provides unlimited end-to-end editing and repurposing services to help you get your video and audio content edited and repurposed quickly, easily, and reliably. Join other busy content creators, founders, brands, and marketers who now spend even more time creating while they take care of the rest. You no longer need to worry about spending hours editing anymore. Just create content, build your audience, and grow your business. If you're a content creator looking to save time and money, or looking to outsource your content marketing team, get your first free video edited now at contentfi.co. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast, or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS dash podcast today. Thanks again, folks. kind of switch gears i want to start off you know sharing a little bit kind of about your background you mentioned about the the, the kind of five exits and you have what's kind of your your experience and why are you the 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 guru at you know b2b SaaS with you know, all the, the experience you have now um up until you know recently you you found and, and, and co-found a ceo at, at revops word yeah. i'm i i'm definitely not a guru but i have a lot of experience and a lot of learnings from mistakes i made and from some of the successes I've had. So I think the most important thing for anyone listening to our podcast today is always be learning, be a student of the industry. Because what I knew 20 years ago, yeah, it informs things I do today, but it may not be as relevant to making good decisions today. So always be learning. So, you know, exits are different, right? Exits sometimes are opportunistic. So... I started my career, as I mentioned, at GE and went through their executive leadership development program. Mm-hmm. And then I had a chance to apply some of that more senior uh, management experience to Netscape. Now, Netscape, for those of you um, who listened to the SAS district, it's like it was the first big internet software company. It created the browser, which provided and democratized access to the internet. And they then wanted to go into the enterprise, so they created enterprise server software, things like your internet servers, and I ran their e-commerce application group. So we had five um, applications, three business-to-business applications and two business-to-consumer, like online catalogs, an online publishing tool. We had a B2B purchasing tool and a B2B selling tool. So the reason I mentioned that was the biggest experiences that I get from the five exits, and by the way, the thing I don't promote is two burndowns. So two burndowns, right? Which um, one company I raised $18 million in a Series A. This was in okay. 2000 and late, early, no, I'm sorry, mid 2000. Yep. And then two years later, we sold it for less than 4 million. So wow. that's not exactly a success, right? Right. But my learning <laughs> from that was even more powerful. And I'll give you an example of the learning from that, right? We had one really big customer, Cisco. Yeah. And Cisco, right, they saw this little startup and they're like, we're not going to give you this $40 million contract right away. And it was a $40 million contract. 
we had a proof of concept. And it was a six-month proof of concept with real tangible milestones, performance right. milestones. Mm-hmm. We invested $8 million to build out our data center infrastructure. Because back then, there wasn't the cloud infrastructures like AWS. Mm-hmm. So you had to get the co-location space. You had to get all your server and your network equipment, et cetera. So, and we had no commitment beyond those, those six months. And after six months, the dot-com boom happened. Our software really didn't quite perform as well as we thought it would. So they said, we're done. We're pulling. That $40 million conversion is done. Wow. And we're like, we just invested... Overall, with people, hardware, et cetera, 70% of the Series A we rounded, of we mm. raised. And we had no other paying customers. So what did that teach me? Well, that said, number one, be very careful of building a product and investing so much money on one big potential customer that's not legally committed. But mm. you think about it. You get that one big behemoth potential customer, Cisco back then. We like, we're going to close 10 more deals when I hear that Cisco is a customer, right? right? Having all that concentration is high risk. So how did that inform the next early stage company I went to? Two things. Number one, not only did I not invest a lot of money without a legally binding revenue committed contract, right. I never wanted concentration over 10%. So even in an enterprise um, company, uh, I had a couple times where I had one customer that represented 20 to 30% of our revenue, and we had the chance to grow that customer even more. Mm. So, But I took the entire team and I said, how do we get the next 10 customers so we can get that customer down to less than 10% of total revenue? So that was a big mistake and a really bad learning I had that changed my entire concentration and go-to-market strategy going forward. So that is one learning. I'll give you another learning. Um, I used to be very focused on close rates. When I ran sales and marketing and and services, in enterprise, we have a $100,000 or $200,000 average deal value. Close rates are important, right? Because you don't need to generate more pipeline to get more revenue. If you have a higher close rate and increase your ACV, you're going to grow faster. Right. So... I really focused on sales process, the qualification criteria. We took our close rate in two quarters from about 21% to 32%. Wow. You'd look at me and say, wow, what a huge success. But at the same time, I took my eye off the demand generation ball, both from a marketing outreach perspective, but equally important from a sales outreach perspective. All my incentive was making quota and getting your ACV up and your close rate up, but there was no pipeline generation being done by the sales team. Mm. Think about what happens if you're, inclu- if you're improving your close rate, you're not generating pipeline. For a couple quarters, we were heroes. The board said, oh my God, this is the most improvement I've ever seen from a, a sales organization. They were raving right. about me. Right. Two quarters later, they're like, Ray, what's happening to your growth? It's <laughs> dried up. <laughs> yeah. And we weren't making our number because I couldn't squeeze more out of the existing pipeline. You had to go generate more pipeline. So that's why I say to every founder, don't be a slave or beholden to a single metric. Because mm. you got to think about the interplay and what happens three, four, six quarters out. 
Yeah, exactly. It's all tied together. You can't just be focusing on your one kind of, you know, uh, narrowed vision. Can you just share like just for kind of context for people listening in with these companies, you know, typically uh, have you worked with, you know, typically work with bootstrap companies or all these, you know, have raised capital and they're venture funded a lot larger stage. So um, I'll give some company names and kind of a profile. So Netscape was venture backed, went public. So that was a big win. And then Mm -hmm. we were bought by two big companies. So Mm. IPO and then a strategic acquisition. Um, When I was at a company called QRS, Quick Response Services, it was a publicly traded company. And I went in and ran worldwide field operations, marketing, sales, services, customer success. We're about a $150 million company. So there, our biggest issue was we had acquired seven technologies, seven companies, and we hadn't integrated them either from a product perspective or from an organizational perspective. So we had six sales organizations, six service organizations, et cetera. So there, it was all about integration, making bets on what are the two or three areas of growth, And there, we just weren't growing fast enough for the public market to want to buy our stock. And this was 2001, 2003. Okay. So So just to be clear, what's not growth fast enough for you in that that time frame? I'm just trying to compare it. We were growing 10% a year. Got it. When I went in, they actually had decreased 4% year over year. So we went in. And within 12 months, we had increased our pipeline growth to 10%. And back then, Mm. for that company... That was a big win. We mm. rationalized it. We took out a hell of a lot of cost of keel. So we also increased our profitability from 18% EBITDA to like 28% EBITDA, right? Mm. So in a public market, when you trade on earnings, that's pretty important. Right. But as we looked at it, we're like, we're not going to be able to really grow fast enough to really have the public market buy our stock. So we looked at strategic options. So there we actually ended up accepting an offer to be bought by another large strategic enterprise software company. It was called JDA at the point in time. They're about a $300 million company. And they're still around. They bought companies like I2, Manuchistics, et cetera. But in the middle of the definitive agreement, they actually missed a quarter's guidance because they were a public company also. Their stock mm-hmm. went down 28%. It was a stock exchange. So yeah. The market cap of our company went down 28%. So we pivoted and we had three private equity companies all bidding for us because Mm -hmm. we had created a little bit of market frenzy that, oh, this company that's got 10,000 paying customers, they've got a a number one market share in that industry. It was Mm -hmm. Universal Product um, Code Catalog for the retail industry. Mm -hmm. And we created a buying frenzy. So we sold to private equity. Mm -hmm. Then the next company I was at was a company called Accruent. And Accruent was a leading company in real estate performance management software for retailers. We had Starbucks as a customer, CVS, Home Depot, et cetera. So there we were about a only a $5 million company. During my tenure there, we got it to a $40 million company. And we grew it in about two and a half years to that level. And we ended up getting bought by Vista Equity. Why? Because mm. Vista saw Accruent as a platform that they could consolidate a lot of the small fragmented players onto. And that's what a lot of private equity does, especially Vista. They want to buy a company that they see as a platform company to tuck in acquisitions of point solutions. Mm. So as a founder, one of the things you should always be 
be thinking about. And I had Tom Riley, and Tom Riley was the CEO of Cloudera when they went public, mm-hmm. and he raised nine hundred million dollars from Intel as a strategic investor. He will tell early stage entrepreneurs, always be looking at your strategic partner ecosystem, not only as a way to accelerate customer acquisition and markets that you may not be known in. Like Intel for them was to get into the high-end enterprise data center type vendors. That strategic partnership became a, a, um, a step into either an investment or an acquisition. So a lot of companies today will look at Salesforce and they'll say, well, Salesforce is the 800-pound gorilla in SaaS, right? Right. So I want to be acquired by Salesforce. You know founders think this. Like, what's, exactly. your, what's your exit strategy? Well, either Salesforce or HubSpot will buy us, right? Yeah, yeah. So my recommendation and Tom, more importantly, Tom's recommendation is when you reach out to potential partners, the whole discussion should be what value can you add to them? It's not about how they accelerate your customer acquisition and your growth. It's, hey, I've noticed this is maybe a missing functionality in your product portfolio that we think we can fill, or it's an industry or a regional customer base that they can't fill. It's like, how do you help them? That's what's going to lead to a potential strategic acquisition. So going back to my experience at Accruent, we looked at Vista and we knew that they were trying to consolidate this space. Mm. And there are funds out there that that's what they're looking to do is consolidate a space that's too fragmented. Look exactly. at the acquisition that was just announced today. Zoom Info bought Course AI mm. for $575 million. So if you look at that, here was a strategic acquirer that was looking at the landscape that they serve, which is kind of that sales technology landscape or mm-hmm. revenue landscape. And Gong is the 800-pound gorilla, right? Mm-hmm. What did they just raise? Over $100 million at a $7.25 billion post money. Yep. So if I'm course, it's like I had a strategic partnership already with Zoom Info. What better acquisition is there, right? You're not number one. You're probably not going to be number one. So mm-hmm. go to a strategic partner who's looking at consolidating this entire revenue intelligence platform marketplace. Yeah. So kind of adding to that point, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. So, you know, you have the one way if somebody's looking, I'm, I'm a SaaS founder early stage, maybe looking to start my new startup, or I'm just starting off, you know, first time founder. And there's, there's a couple ways to look at it. One is, okay, these are some big players that I want to build for and eventually sell to. And then there's also you know, looking at the data that you have and you probably analyze and say, ah, oh, these are some hot markets. They're growing fast. They're, they're getting higher multiples. Is there any you know, specific industries or certain uh, markets that you would really focus on and you, if you were to start a SaaS company today and you really you know, get excited about? Well, first of all, my biggest advice is if you're a founder, build a great company. And mm. don't build it for the exit strategy. Yep. Build it for the passion that you have, the industry or the process that you're trying to improve and you're trying to improve your customer's business. At the end of the day, don't build a company for an exit, build a company to build a great company. So that's my first thing. Now, if you're thinking about where the market's going versus where it's been, right? So I think if you can combine content slash data in forward-looking technology, specifically around AI and machine learning, Mm -hmm. I think that's one really interesting area. 
because you know, Akio, you see how much money is going into AI and machine learning. And honestly, a lot of investment communities are followers. Mm -hmm. They're fast followers, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I've got to be in CRM or I've got to be in marketing automation or I've got to be in cybersecurity. So I think content slash data plus AI machine learning is a huge market opportunity. As an example, if you're providing a forecast management piece of software, that's wonderful, right? And a lot of forecast management software today has AI machine learning. One person's opinion, I would probably build a company that in the contract, I say, we have the right, Mrs. or Mr. Customer, to anonymize and aggregate the data, the, mm, the information exactly. that goes into forecasting. Yep. And the benefit is, I'm not only going to let you automate the forecast process, I'm going to provide you feedback that based upon your pipeline and your heuristics, here's probably what percentage of your pipeline actually is going to close. The last research we did was less than 50% of deals that are forecasted to close on a certain time frame close within that time frame. And 68% of companies were were satisfied with their forecasting process. How can you be satisfied with something that you're less than 50% of the time you're right, right? Exactly. <laughs> so that's one market I see this ripe is taking content and data and combine that with machine learning and AI. Yeah, the hard part is and just getting enough data, right? That's the, the hardest part. Yeah, and that's in any industry and any process. Mm. Yeah, I agree. This, this has been really, really fun, Ray. Uh, you know, coming close to kind of the end of the, the podcast today, just want to ask a couple, you know, rapid fire questions uh, on, on a little bit more personal level. You know, with, the, with all your experience you have, looking back now, if you were, you know, talking to your 25 your year old self, What's maybe one piece of advice you wish you had known and, and would tell yourself then? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the most important thing anyone's ever told me is to be able to look in the mirror every morning that you wake up and be happy with the person that's looking back at you. Mm. Right? That you take, you don't take shortcuts. Um, integrity is never questioned. So someone told me that when I was 25. So that's the one thing I would say is be able to look in the mirror every morning and like who you look back at. Um, I won't go into the details, but I turned down a job in 2000 that the person who took it was a second place candidate, made $40 million in the next two months, and not two months, in the next two and a half years. I never look back on that decision and say, I lost $40 million. I look back on it and I said, I wasn't comfortable with some of the values and I was going to be sacrificing my own value system and integrity. So that's number exactly. one. Number two, the power of relationships. I always thought it was more important to be smart, successful, driven. I'm very competitive. And I would probably not put enough emphasis on the value of relationships over time. Mm. The reason I mentioned that is I burned a couple bridges with very influential people. Mm. And I was right about the topic. I was wrong about the way I went about it. And like, you mm. don't know what you're talking about. You don't tell one of the top five people in the industry that they're stupid, right? <laughs> Which I did because I knew I was right. So your ego speaking there, right? You try to control your ego, I guess so. Yeah, control your ego and build relationships. 
Mm. Another thing, and I've told everyone this my entire career, if I worked with people, whether they were two levels below me or two levels above me, I reach out before we had social media every six to 12 months. And I would mm. reach out and just say, hey, how you doing, Akil? I just wanted to see how you're doing. Here's some things I'm working on. What's kind of been new and exciting for you? And people were amazed. So like, Ray, how do you have people like Byron Dieter? And Byron is one of the best VCs in the industry, right? I met Byron 20-some years ago. And I'll still reach out once a year and just see how he's doing. Yeah. And if I need advice, I'll say, hey, any feedback on this? But far too many times, people only reach out when they want something or need something. Of course, right? yeah. How many times have you had a former employee that you haven't talked to in eight years when he reached out and said, I'm looking for a job? Exactly. It doesn't feel good. So reference. turn that around <laughs> and say, keep your relationships warm because you're genuinely interested in a person and or you think you have something of value to them. Love it. Ray, what does success mean to you today? You know, five exits, uh, you, know, you know, whether it's personally, business, financially, life, no right answer. How do you measure your own success? Um, it sounds so canned, right? But number one is it's really is giving back. It's giving mm. back to an industry that has um, provided me and my family more than I could ever have thought of from a poor little farm boy in Ohio who didn't even know anything about business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but giving back, the way I'm doing that is through RevOps Squared, believe it or not. So okay. we talked a lot about being metrics informed, have data-driven decision-making, we will never, ever once charge for our benchmarks mm. because I believe that especially earlier stage founders and CEOs and even operating executives, if they have access to benchmarks that provide them some context of where their company should be performing at mm-hmm. across multiple processes, whether it's acquisition, retention, expansion, mm-hmm. et cetera, then they can make better decisions. And our industry, the SaaS and cloud industry, it's going to become more mature. Right. And when the the excitement and sizzle goes off the cloud bloom and our value is going to be based upon financial fundamentals like earnings per share, net income, operating profit, et cetera, that our executives of the future know how to run a business based upon data and financials, not just mm. based upon momentum and buzz. Mm. So I'll, giving back through these benchmarks, never ever charging for them, is the most important thing to me. Number mm-hmm. two is helping um, earlier career people kind of maneuver some of the more difficult decisions they need to make. My mm-hmm. advice is just one person's advice, but it's informed by both my experiences, my mistakes, and from the constant learning that I'm doing. One of the reasons I love these benchmarks and doing all these research projects, I'm learning. Every mm-hmm. time I had a podcast guest on, Akil, to me, that's not about getting another thousand downloads or another 3000 downloads. It's about me learning and allowing our listening audience to learn. Right. So learning is the other thing that's most important to me. Love it. This has been awesome. I really appreciate you jumping on today. Right. Um, last question, you know, where can uh, founders listening in, get in touch with you, learn about more about you or, or RevOps and, and kind of the benchmarks you guys have? Well, definitely everyone can visit, um, RevOpsSquared.com. That's our website. It has both access to all the benchmarks, all the executive reports we've done with the companies I talked about, the HubSpots and demand base, et cetera. Um, and I'm big on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. It's my number one social media platform. So it's just Ray Reich. 
Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my claims to fame is I'm user number 256 on LinkedIn. Okay, cool. One of my good friends with the co-founder, so I got in very early, right? Nice. Um, so LinkedIn, and then at Twitter, I'm at Ray Reich um, on Twitter. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Ray. Really appreciate you jumping on again. Jake Hill, it's great talking to you. Thank you Cheers. for having me on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.